And we'll begin in verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns the oath. This is an evil, and all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion." For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given to you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going." Verse 11, again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man knows or does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it is suddenly befalls them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and had a great king come against it, and besieged it, and built great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Chapter 10. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay a great offense to the rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it. A serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. 
He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know that the way or the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land. When your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Though sloth, or through sloth, the roof sinks in, through indolence the house leaks, bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is God's Word. And let's ask for His help to understand it and obey it. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to gather in your name, to open your Word, to ask your help in understanding it, and to ask your strength in obeying it. Thank you again. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, Of all the chapters in Ecclesiastes, uh, these two that we just read, especially chapter 10, they happen to be the most difficult to interpret and to teach. Commentators are not agreed as to which sections go with other sections together to form a literary unit, so it's hard to know where one argument ends and another argument begins. Uh, If you ever should find yourself in seminary in a preaching class through Ecclesiastes and you draw 9 and 10 out of the hat, good luck. (laughs) Only say that because if you've got a stack of commentaries and I thought about bringing, this is the stack where none of them agree and this one over here is by himself, only unified in the fact that he says all of these are wrong and his is right. Um, But the problem has to do with the fact that the passage seems in one commentator's words, to lack coherence, inspired scripture as it is, uh, but not readily brought under a unifying theme. And I'm thinking while I'm reading this, anytime I ever sat down with someone older and wiser than me to listen, I've never had them say, all right, now write this down. Here's my outline. I'm going to stick with it. No, they bounce all over the place, don't they? As thought goes, it's jumbled up. Then later when you organize it, you try to make sense of it. So all of that to say, we don't need to worry. We have this little passage in 2 Timothy. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So this is good stuff. If it befuddles most of the commentarians and scholars, we're going to work through it practically, making much of of what seems to be emphasized. 
And I think after having spent time with those folks this week, it's best split into two arguments. We won't call them themes. Um, We'll call them arguments. And they don't split right between chapters 9 and 10. We'll spend most of our time in the first 12 verses of 9. But if you look at the first 12 verses of 9, here's, here's what we can say. Because death is certain, and because life is unpredictable, enjoy the days that God has given you. I think that's a good functional argument for at least that portion of these two chapters. And then from verse 13 in chapter 9 through the end of verse uh, 20, which is the last verse of chapter 10, we're going to say, since a little foolishness can go a long way, use wisdom. Those are his two arguments. Um, and it seems as though there's a little bit of an overlap. But let me try to walk you through the latter. We'll look at what we just mentioned first. And then we'll go back and spend most of our time in chapter 9. But through chapter 10, in fact, just look at verse, uh, verse number 1 of chapter 10. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. Now, I've never seen a fly in perfumed ointment. Um, but I would think that a problem. If you ordered that and Amazon brought it, you opened the lid and there's a bunch of dead flies in it, you'd probably send it back, right? Hoping that it had uh, free returns written on there when you clicked and bought it. You might have to drive to Coles and drop it off, but it's no good. He says this in order to make his point in the second line. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. And what he's saying is you can ruin a very expensive tin of ointment because of a few dead flies, which probably represent 2% or less of the ingredients. (laughs) A little bit of folly, 10 minutes worth of foolishness can ruin an entire career. Uh, 10 minutes worth of indiscretion can ruin a very long-lasting relationship. They don't seem to be uh, balanced out where the crime fits the punishment. You should know that foolishness is leveraged disaster, is what he's trying to say. And he's got a lot of examples here. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. That's not left and right politics in America. That didn't exist when this was written. So you can't use it for that. Uh, But the idea is that... uh, One man's thinking, wisdom's one way, and the foolish thinking is the total opposite other way. Uh, Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. You can't talk like that anymore, can you? But, I mean, he's telling us what we already know, that there are some people that can do something as simple as walk down the street and broadcast that they are an idiot. Right? And we all know some. He's saying foolishness will ruin things, so be wise. We all know that guy. Don't be that guy. Listen. He's got a whole book, Proverbs, that talk about listening and watching and learning and being quiet. He goes on, verse 8, just skip down a bit. Um, This has to do with the idea that there are inherent risks in just living. 
So pay attention because it's dangerous. Uh, He who digs a pit will fall into it. That's the idea of digging a hole, covering it up, hoping the, the deer or whatever you want falls in it. That's how they would hunt. Well, it's possible to fall in it yourself, tracking you know, your deer and fall into somebody else's pit, perhaps. Uh, the serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. You can just hear it. I got bit by a snake. How? Breaking into this guy's house. You shouldn't have been breaking into his house through his wall. You might not have got bitten by a snake. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. We've spent hours over on the property after clearing some hardwoods, cutting them down, putting them on a log splitter, and busting them up. And I use my, my boys to help me with it. Two seconds worth of being stupid can result in cutting your crazy hand off rather than splitting the, the, the logs, right? So what he said, this is practical stuff because foolishness goes a long way, can hurt you and hurt you real bad. Um, if the iron's blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. You can spend 10 minutes sharpening your axe or burn up a lot more calories doing it the hard way. So wisdom helps one to succeed. And then maybe one of the best things, verse 20, even in your thoughts, don't curse the king. Don't even think that way. Nor in your bedroom where you think nobody's listening, curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature will tell the matter. There's two figures of speech like pitfalls. We got that from Solomon. Now a little bird told me, get that from Solomon. But it's true. You think nobody's listening. But if that gets around, it's going to be hard for you to be looked at or trusted or dealt with the same after they know what's in your heart. That was in last week's passage. Don't listen to the door very good. You might hear people cursing you. But you know in your heart that you've cursed other people too. So be smart. Since a little foolishness can go a long way, use wisdom. Wisdom is better. So I think that's enough. If you want more than that, you've got chapter 10. Consult the commentaries. See what they say, how they split it. It's all the same stuff. They say the same things. They just catalog it differently. So let's go back to what we said before. This is verses 1 through 12 in chapter 9. And we're going to call it, Because death is certain and life is unpredictable, we'll see both of those, enjoy the days that God has given you. So here's a little working outline where we find that, but we're going to mix it up a bit just because I think it'd be better to end on a good note than a bad one. Would you rather leave on the good note or the bad note? Let's all vote to leave on the good note. So nobody's going to give us bad grades. Nobody agrees on how to do these chapters. But here's where we find it. Verse 1 through 6, he's going to tell us that death is certain. And 7 through 10, he's going to direct us to enjoy the days God has given us because death is uncertain or is certain. And then 11 and 12, he's going to tell us life is unpredictable. So it's certain that you're going to die. Life is not predictable. So enjoy the days God has given you. So start with that one. Death is certain. I think we could probably 
poll the audience with a bulletin quiz. And I think we'd probably all agree that we've got to wonder if, if the vast majority of people live with far less joy than God meant for us to experience. Uh, it's probably a whole list or battery of anxieties uh, going up the road the other day. I saw a sign outside a, a church attacking anxiety. Uh, that's their series they're going through. Uh, we're anxious about the economy. We're, we're worried about inflation. We see it at the grocery store if no one else, nowhere else. Uh, we get mad about gas prices, irritated with all those political ads, and they'll get worse into November. Then there's our health. Um, will I need that joint replacement? Will I need a bypass? Will I need chemo? Will I need radiation? Will I need long-term skilled care? Who will take care of things when that's my situation? And on and on and on. And I think it's this anxiety that eats away at the joy God intended. And Solomon seems to be a poet at drawing out things to be anxious under the sun. But in the middle of it all, we just get a couple of lines. That's, that's life under the sun. So I'm going to give you some advice. Enjoy some things. Before he gets there, look at what, uh, if, you, if you just back up for at, at, at 9, the couple of verses, um, or a, a phrase into verse 17, the way he concludes what we covered last week. Man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, much, many, or may toil or work in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So if he says the same thing three times, I think it's clear what he's trying to say. You're not going to read a crystal ball and know your future. God designed it to be kept from you. Even the wisdom that God gives will not let you see past the veil of tomorrow. So when we get to chapter 9, he says, but all this... So if you like marking in your Bible, circle the all this and, and draw an arrow back to what we just read in the end of chapter 8 with verse 17. What's all this I laid to heart? What's he laying to heart? The fact that he can't see into the future. He's limited. So having laid this to his heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God... Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. So you can't know what's coming, but in chapter 9, Solomon tells us, God knows, and they're in his hands. Now, then he goes on to say, well, sometimes it feels like love, and sometimes it feels like hate coming down the road at me. And I'm thinking, well, I can't see up the road. God does, but I'm confused as to whether he loves me or he hates me. Because some of this stuff is good and some of this stuff is bad. But his point is that whatever finds its way to us or evil finding its way to good people is not outside God's control. God is sovereign. He set the times. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. So whatever happens, though it's confusing, it's comforting to know that our deeds are in his hand. So if, we, if we'll credit him that much, okay, I get it. I can't see the future either. I trust that it's in the Lord's hands. 
Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Sometimes the good goes to the bad and the bad stuff goes to the good. Look at verse 2. He expands on that. It's the same for all since the same event, and that's dying, happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices, to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. He who swears, he who shuns an oath. (laughs) So moral or immoral, we're all mowed down the same way. I wrote that down out of one of those commentaries. And then out of another one, I wrote down, everyone sins, so everyone dies. So you keep going. Also, the heart of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts. While they live, and after that, they go to the dead. So here, he's he's right on track with Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? But he's probably thinking about the Genesis account, describing God's decision to send the great flood and hit the, the big fat reset button on the whole planet, minus eight people in an ark. It's almost verbatim. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds, for I am sorry that I have made them. So he has precedent for such a dim view of of what happens to us. Go even further back in Genesis' account, before the flood, this is still in the garden, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So Adam and Eve disobeyed, right? We learned that in Sunday school as kids. And death followed just as God promised death would come. Even though we know John 3.16 and God sends his son in order to unwind the curse of sin, give us his righteousness in exchange for our sins which are forgiven, then we live in glory forever and ever and ever. But we're still under the sun, and under the sun everybody sinned, so everybody dies. It is certain. Nobody skips. Death comes to everybody unless we hear the, the trumpet blast. So bottom line, the so-called righteous as well as the wicked deserve to die. So everyone who dies had it coming. We deserve what we get. Then Solomon says, verse 4, he who is joined with all the living, that just means if you're alive and kicking, you have hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. How do you like that one? Living dog better than a dead lion. Now, the lion still means today what it meant in the scriptures. The lion's the king of the jungle, most powerful beast. It's a cat, of course, but you don't mess with them. The difference in the little cats and the big cats are the big ones are big enough to eat you. The little ones can't pull that off, but every time I look at one, I think that's what he's thinking. (laughs) Seems to be instinct. But the dog now is not the dog in the Old Testament. We, we hadn't bred labradoodles out of, out of scavengers, unclean, nasty dogs that, 
the Jews used to describe how they felt about the Gentiles. So these are scavengers. You don't want to be a dog, but a living dog is better than a dead lion. At least you're alive. You have some hope. You can think. You can enjoy things you can love. You can build. You're not done. Game's not over is what he's saying. So he's, he's turning here, and he's bringing in some hope. Where there is life, there's hope. All right? If there's hope with life, and we just discussed how death is certain, well, let's skip over into life is unpredictable. Life is better than death, but life is unpredictable. And that's in verse 11. We just skipped over... Uh, the 7 through 10. We'll come back to that. Look in verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift. Well, it should be. Don't fast people usually win the race? Or the battle to the strong. Don't the strong people usually beat up the weak? Or bread to the wise. Well, he's wise, so he should figure out how to have it. Riches to the intelligent. They get paid for what they think. Favor to those with knowledge. Yeah, you'd favor a knowledgeable resource rather than an ignorant resource. But here's what he says. Time and chance happen to them all. I'll have to explain what that means in a second. For man does not know his time. That's a repetition from the end of chapter 8. We can't see the future. Like fish are taken in an evil net. The word evil. All nets are evil if you're a fish, <laughs> right? They're, they're useful to a fisherman, catch the little guys who put them on a hook and they catch the big ones. But if you're the bait, the net is evil. And like birds who are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time. You didn't see that coming. It's never convenient when it suddenly falls upon them. So Solomon calls time and chance is basically our equivalent to the, the, the idea of an accident, uh, an, an unfortunate event. They happen in life. If, if accidents weren't accidental, we would call them on purposes, right? You know, you're a parent. You go through this. What happened? Why did it happen? Well, it was on accident. On accident, by accident. You keep digging, you find out there's a lot of purpose to that accident. <laughs> it was an on-purpose event, I do believe. These are accidents, uh, you can have someone who everybody's talking about, they're going to win the gold. They're favored. The odds all talk about it. But they trip over a hurdle and they come in seventh. You didn't expect that. Or the business that had the product that you just can't mess up. But it was. And the market threw it out. It's a penny stock. Everyone lost their money. Or you hire the guy who's supposed to be the one to run it runs it into the ground he has a good point life is unpredictable so because death is certain and we've already covered the two verses that talk about life being unpredictable I think it's easy to buy both see it and understand it so enjoy the days that God has given you so go back to verse 7 it's against this dark background of unpredictable life that could wind up in an accident any day, any time. I don't even want to think about that, and neither do you. 
death is certain, we're all going to die. So what do we do? Look at verse 7. The word go is how it begins. Go is emphatic. Um, We've been told to enjoy what God has given us five times already in this book. This is the sixth time, but this is the first where the word go, and it could have an exclamation point at the end of it. Uh, The way we do our study of literature, the volume is increased here. The emphasis is, is pointed Death certain, life's unpredictable. Go eat your bread with joy. Don't waste that. Don't waste a single day. You don't know how many of them you have left. And when they're gone, you're dead. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Now, wait a second. They don't memorize that verse in Awana. (laughs) Do they? I never remember that verse in Sunday school. Or the flannel graph. All right, children, let's, let, let's memorize this verse. Go drink your wine with a merry heart. Now, we could say that bread represents all other dishes and wine represents all other drink. I'm not sure if he's meant to read into this, but that's a sermon for another time in another place. But here's the point I'll make because it's already been made, so it's a reminder. These are all meant as gifts. And they are meant as gifts by the one who created them, which is God in heaven. Down to the mechanics of the living organisms that take something that grows on a vine and then is preserved with alcohol. It's not that the devil got in the system and said, I will invent yeast and fermentation because if it's that then pickles are the devil's stuff too (laughs) right so we can we can get into trouble trying to figure out how all this works but here's the rule it's God's gift enjoy it with him in his presence and you won't get drunk because to be drunk is in the scriptures as wrong When do you ever give away your faculties as a Christian? You're not supposed to. Now, if you take the gift and walk away from the Lord, it will hurt you. Same as any of the other gifts, your food, your money, your relationships. Keep God close. You'll be fine. You can enjoy them. You can, the word moderation with God beside you isn't even necessary. You don't have to say the drink responsibly with God there. Who drinks irresponsibly with God there? Bring him with you. Uh, We'll come back to that because there'll be a much better illustration than wine, especially with our relationships. So what he's saying is stop your complaining. Stop fixating on your problems. Stop curating your anger. Don't rush through your meals. Stop choking down food like a dog. Eat with your family or a friend or a stranger, but enjoy it. I didn't make food for you to gulp it down like one of those hot dogs that, you know, fell on the ground. You throw it to the dog. They they don't even taste it. It goes right down the hatch. But don't we do that too? Here's your comparison. God made these things so you'd enjoy them and think of him And it started in a garden where he said to Adam, you've got all these trees, 
except for one. Eat. Enjoy it. God called it good. If God called that fruit and that grain good, it's good stuff. Now take that and compare it to flying down sunset, pull into some fast food window, get mad because the line is long. They're all long. Thank COVID for that. Um, then grab a bag of chicken nuggets and french fries, throw them over your shoulder to the kids in the back and hope they have enough time to choke it all down before you slide to a stop at wherever you're going, yell at them and get them all out, hope they didn't get it on their uniform or whatever it is, and then just rinse and repeat. Does that match? Which one is better? Which one's enjoyable? Which one costs more? You say, well, Chick-fil-A went up. (laughs) It might cost you your children if you don't eat with them. Who wants to eat alone? I mean, our crazy schedules necessitate fast food. It's better for you, and it digests better, and you enjoy it, and God is glorified, I think, when we do it slow. Only history will tell, and probably glory, what it cost our whole culture to give up what you see in that Norman Rockwell picture with the big turkey and, you know, everybody around the table. Um, I think that was on the Saturday Evening Post. And it's a little overdone. Our house never looked like that. Somebody would have been mad in that picture if... If it was the, it's probably in your house too. And the turkey wasn't that big or that golden brown. Looked more like, you know, when they cut into it on Christmas vacation, it comes out dry. <laughs> but isn't all together with your family, God's there too, a better way? I mean, what do we give up when America's families don't eat dinner with each other anymore, ever, for one reason or another? So he's, he's saying here, enjoy this stuff. And then the next uh, verse is more specific. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain, brief life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now, I, I think... I understand what he means to say by this verse being here, but there's some extra stuff just on the side, freebies for the message today. If you're looking through this, enjoy your life, all right, with the wife whom you love. This is a couple. All the days of your vain, that's a brief life. It's short. It'll be gone before you know it. That he has given you, he gave you the life and the relationship, but it's under the sun, so it has an expiration date. Because that is your portion. He determined that to be yours. In life and your toil. At which you toil under the sun. He's saying that that is going to be work. These poor kids that grow up thinking that marriage is the solution to their life. No, you're hitching your wagon to someone else who has... Uh, a, a desperately wicked heart that lies to them and they're inclined to believe it too. That's usually how the little bit of marriage counseling I've ever done starts and it usually ends there because I'll say, here's the ground rules. 
I have a desperately wicked heart beating in this chest that lies to me and I'm inclined to believe it. You have a desperately wicked heart that's wicked. It'll lie to you and you'll be inclined to believe it. You have a desperately wicked heart. It'll lie to you and you'll believe it. This isn't going to work. We've got this book, but that's it. Because when we abandon the book, we will devour one another. That's marriage. It'll be work. It'll require wisdom. But it was meant as a gift. And the man who designed it says, enjoy it. Because there's buried in there this mystery of, of, of joy and here's the best way I know how to explain it. God is going to love you from heaven through the person he gave you to spend your short life with if it works correctly. It's great stuff. But evidently, we need to be told to enjoy it. And we forget the fact that it's work. So again, he might be thinking of the garden here where God made the woman as a partner for the man or this may be a way of adding the category of relationships to the category of food and drink, starting with the most intimate of relationships. But most agree this refers to the marital bond, literally. And the idea here, because he's been talking about all this work going on, he's saying here, don't just provide for her. Don't just build a house for her. Don't just buy clothes, cars, vacations for her and the children. All that stuff's good and enjoyable, and the rest of the world will think you're a fine man. Enjoy them, the wife and the kids, not just the vacation and the stuff. And to enjoy them, you're going to have to spend time with them. You can't enjoy them in a frame on a shelf in an office somewhere. Um. One of these days when I'm gone, you can look at all these pencil notes that I put in here and then abandon, you know, when I get into the message. Because sometimes I feel like it'll get me in trouble. But I think it's warranted. If you know Jesus, you're saved by grace. You understand that you need his righteousness and he must forgive your sins to be in heaven with God forever. But you don't want to be around your kids and your kids don't want to be around you. There's a problem. Now, kids can grow up and lose their mind and walk away of, from the best parents. Again, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It'll lie to them and they'll be inclined to believe it. But that doesn't mean you can't work to do everything you can such that having taught them the right things, they may come back. Usually around the time someone hands them their own baby, it dawns on them, you weren't as ridiculous as they thought you were. They'll come back a lot of times, sometimes never. But across the board, generally speaking, if we love Jesus but don't like our family... <laughs> Something's off. Work on it. Enjoy them. Again, enjoy the gift with God. Bring God home. 
If God's not at home, duh, that's why you don't like each other. You can't expect that human beings will just lovingly give each other the best part of life. They'll take it for themselves unless God's there. Uh, Enjoy the wife whom you love. Don't leave God and go to your neighbor's house and enjoy his wife. That's wrong. You keep God here with his gifts, you'll enjoy these things. All right, let's keep moving. One more thing. Verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. That's the place of the dead. Once you're dead, you don't work. You don't know anything. You don't have any wisdom. And he's talking about when when under the sun's over. We'll have that stuff in glory, but not under the sun. So what he's saying, for the teacher, it turns out hard work is part of the joy of living. God created us to work. So this is the perfect work-life balance, isn't it? That's so hard and elusive. You've got these things at home you must enjoy and cultivate. But you've got this job that if, you've, if God has gifted you, if you've put your hand to this plow, plow it good and do it right. But don't burn both ends of that candle. You'll abuse one or the other if you don't find that balance. Jesus says a similar thing. And he had all the relationships... Here's some homework for some of you that just love the factoids of the scriptures. Go look up how many times Jesus and food are in the same place. Where the setting for what's happening describes a wedding feast with water turned into not just wine, but good wine. What do you do with that? Or him breaking bread and feeding it to a bunch of people. Or preparing fish for his 12 when they don't know who he is. But there's a lot of Jesus sitting down with people, spending time when people are shocked that he's doing it, like the woman at a well, and then the food involved, there's a lot of it. Well, he also had his work, too. This is what is said. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And what he meant by that was he's up against his hour, and that death would overtake him. This is the means by which he pays for our sins. And then his work in redemption was over. After that, he spent time telling folks what to expect and where he's going. And then after that, it's the church's business along with the Holy Spirit to carry it on out. So unless the trumpet sounds first, the same death will overtake us. But before our hour strikes... Jesus says we must work the works that he has assigned us. It's a good word. So let's recap and land the plane. Unfortunately, we often fritter away our days with meaningless pursuits. We all know it. Climbing the ladder, keeping up with the Joneses. I'll need another one of those. We got Joneses in this church. Maybe Jenkins or something like that. Um, Petty arguments, grudges, frustrations, worries, anger. We waste our days as if they are in unlimited supply. Because Jesus died, rose again to save us from our enslavement to sin, that heart that will lie to us, and reconcile us to his Father through his death on our behalf, we can begin, even now, under the sun, to live as God intended in the beginning back in the garden. 
enjoying God and his many gifts in the context in which he gave them. Everyone sins, everyone dies. On top of that, life is unpredictable today, could be our last. So, eat your bread with enjoyment. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Enjoy life with the wife that you love. And whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Now, about an hour ago, I wrote this down. It's not often that a church service will help you facilitate the sermon's own application. We've got food down here. I don't know about wine. Pretty sure we don't. But you'll have each other to enjoy it with and all to thank the Lord for his gifts he's given this church, particularly ones that he gave a young lady named Rachel whose gifts are being redeployed. And we're going to thank her, her family, the Lord, each other for what we've got and enjoy it. But before we do that, we're going to sing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." just to take him at his word. Uh, it's one more line, and then just to know, thus saith the Lord. So, lead us, pray for us, including the food. And for those of you that realized we missed the catechism, come on Wednesday. <laughs>